hypnosis is a state of highly focused attention and it involves also a capacity for cognitive flexibility to see things from a new and different point of view. And that's a tremendous therapeutic opportunity. When you're in that frame of mind, you're open to things that otherwise you would have been open for. So my redheaded patient had no idea that she could change in five minutes from this state of suffering and terror to one of relative comfort. And so we can learn and change very quickly when we're in a state of mind that allows us to think that's possible. Just try it and see what it's like. So that capacity to suspend your usual beliefs is a tremendous therapeutic opportunity. It's not a vulnerability. And so the fears that people have that they will lose control, they'll become suggestible automatons is wrong. It's just a state of openness to new ideas and change. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to share an incredible guest with all of you as we dig into the emerging science of hypnotism. Hypnotherapy has long been used to support the emotional wellness of people in treatment who battle things like addiction, who struggle with PTSD, or other emotional issues. But did you know that this modality is also something that can even be leveraged from your smartphone? So today we're going to explore the potential of hypnotherapy and self-hypnotism to support both physical and mental emotional wellness, as we learn from Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is the Associate Chair of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and the co-founder and Chief Scientific Officer of Reverie. He is a psychiatrist with more than 45 years of clinical and research experience, studying stress, pain, sleep, and hypnosis. Educated at Harvard and Yale, he has written 13 books, 404 scientific journal articles, and 170 book chapters. He started Reverie to do what so many of us want to do, which is simply put more good into the world so that people can tap into his expertise and change your mind. Dr. David Spiegel, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Karina. I'm very glad to be here, and I'm here because I want to share the health. <laughs> That's right. Share the health. Now, while you and I got the chance to meet each other last week and have a deep discussion on nutrition without compromise, as we dove into the role of hypnotherapy and self-hypnotism as it relates to weight loss and wellness, I'm really thrilled that we get to deepen this conversation today as we explore mental health because as you and I have talked about offline, PTSD, stress, emotional challenges, these are things that we all face. There's an impact on our society. There's an impact on our families. And often I think we feel, I mean, just as people, like we don't have the tools that we need to help cope with these problems. So as we get started, I just hope that you can share with our audience at Care More Be Better, what made you decide to dedicate your career to this field within psychiatry to hypnosis? Well, Karina, hypnosis is actually the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's the first time a talking interaction between a doctor and a patient was thought to have therapeutic benefit. It's 250 years old, just in the current Western tradition, older than that in the use of trance in healing in various ways. And I got into it, uh, it's sort of a genetic illness in my family, my both my parents were psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. I survived that. They uh, told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I want to be, so here I am. But my father, when he was getting ready to ship overseas at the beginning of World War II, he was a battalion surgeon in North Africa, uh, was trained by a Viennese refugee named Gustav von Aschaffenberg, who was a forensic psychiatrist in Austria, had a smallpox scar on his forehead. And he noticed that when he was interviewing these prisoners, some of them would just kind of nod off and go into some kind of altered state. He got interested, learned that it was hypnosis and started using it in his treatment and in teaching it. 
so the dinner table conversations at home were pretty interesting. I got to watch my father make movies of people who were having hysterical seizures and inducing them and controlling them with hypnosis. And I thought, well, this is pretty interesting. So when I got to medical school, I took a hypnosis course. And um, my first patient ever is one I will never forget. Uh, I was a in pediatric rotation at Children's Hospital in Boston. And the nurse starts telling me, Spiegel, your next patient, she's in status asthmaticus, is in room 342. And I just followed the sound of the wheezing down the hall. And I walk into the room and there's this pretty 15-year-old redhead, knuckles white, bolt upright in bed, struggling for breath. Her mother's standing there crying, nurse in the room. And so I'm on the spot. I hadn't gotten to asthma in my hypnosis course, but I thought, what the hell, I'll try it anyway. And I didn't know what else to do because she'd been unresponsive to subcutaneous epinephrine times two. The next step was going to be general anesthesia mm. or starting her on steroids or both. So I said, you want to learn a breathing exercise? And she nods. So I get her hypnotized, still wheezing. And then I realized we hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet. So I uh, came up with something very sophisticated and clever. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in bed. She's not wheezing anymore. Her knuckles aren't white. Her mother stopped crying. The nurse ran out of the room. And my intern comes looking for me. And I figured he's going to pat me on the back and say, what'd you do, Spiegel? Good job. <laughs> Instead, he said, the nurse filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Now, Massachusetts has a lot of strange laws, and that is not on the list. And her mother was standing right next to me when I did it. So he said, you're going to have to stop doing this. I said, oh, really? Why? I can't imagine a more visible scene of evidence that a technique like hypnosis can help people in a hurry. And he said, well, it might be dangerous. And, you know, that's the thing about hypnosis. People either dismiss it as being ridiculous, a stage show trick, or really dangerous, neither of which it is. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, you can take me off the case if you want, but until you do that, she's my patient, and I'm not going to tell her anything I know is not true. This is not dangerous. I watched it help her. So he storms out of the room, and there's a council of war with the chief resident and the attending over the weekend, and they came back on Monday with a radical idea. They said, let's ask the patient. I don't think they'd ever done that before. Now, she'd been hospitalized every month for three months in status asthmaticus. She did have one subsequent hospitalization, but went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. And I figured that anything that could help a patient that much, that fast, violate a non-existent Massachusetts law had to be worth looking into. And I've been doing it ever since. It was just her experience and the evidence of my eyes and ears said, there's something here that we need to take more advantage of than we have. And so I've devoted a good bit of my career to doing exactly that. And that's why I co-founded Reverie. I want it to be available to as many people as possible. Easier to manipulate or something along those lines. Well, what do you have to say to those individuals who have skepticism specifically around hypnotism and self-hypnosis? Well, you know, we're social creatures as humans. We rely on information provided to us by other people. And if you're worried about people having responding to suggestions of things that aren't true, think about the number of people that think that Trump won the last election. That isn't hypnosis. Hypnosis is a state of highly focused attention, and it involves also a capacity for cognitive flexibility to see things from a new and different point of view. And that's a tremendous therapeutic opportunity. When you're in that frame of mind, you're open to things that otherwise you would have been open for. So my redheaded patient had no idea that she could change in five minutes from this state of suffering and terror to one of relative comfort. And so we can learn and change very quickly when we're in a state of mind that allows us to think that's possible. Just try it and see what it's like. So that capacity to suspend your usual beliefs is a tremendous therapeutic opportunity. It's not a vulnerability. And so the fears that people have that they will lose control, they'll become suggestible automatons is wrong. It's just a state of openness to new ideas and change. Could you sometimes do that in a bad direction? Sure, we all do in our lives sometimes, but it's not losing control, it's really gaining control. It's saying there's a whole new way I could be that might really be good for me or good for other people. And that's what hypnosis is all about. Well, and in the case where you just described this asthmatic patient, 
essentially that's what you were doing for her, right? Because she was losing control and probably entering a state of panic. And that state of panic was making things worse. And so by going through and helping her focus on some breathing exercises while under this state of hypnotism, that they were able to calm the tissues in their lungs so that they could breathe right. clearly again. Now, I told this story on our last time together, but I experienced a asthmatic episode when I was in college. It had never happened to me before. And for something like that to come out of the blue when you're alone in a room and before the days of cell phones and things like that, and suddenly having a hard time breathing and feeling almost like you might black out, I, I quieted my mind. I was able to get back to a calm state and that enabled me to succeed essentially. Now, afterwards, I go see a doctor and what's the first thing they do? Give me that inhaler, right? And they say, okay, well, you got to keep this on hand. And almost as if it's like a life-saving thing, like I must have it on my person at all times. Now, I never had another asthma attack. What brought it on? Probably pollen or something in the air. Who knows? Maybe I just got suddenly very panicked. Maybe it was a panic attack. I don't really know, right? But the right. power of the mind to solve that was present. It was a thing that was available to me. And I think it's something we discount too often. Why? Why is that? That's right. Well, because I think, you know, our mind, our brain is this three pound organ on the top of our body. It's the major evolutionary advantage we humans have carry around with us, but it doesn't come with a user's manual. So we sometimes don't use it as well as we can. And one of the things that you did that is a real, that helped you is you learn to focus on what you're for, not what you're against. What often happens when people are having a real somatic symptom, and I'm willing to believe that your bronchioles were constricting a bit, that you had a bit of a, an asthma-like attack, that's fine. But at the same time, you got to where you recognized that struggling with it was making it worse. It's like a snowball rolling downhill. The more you fight it, the worse it gets. And so you notice your body's getting worse. You get more anxious. The more anxious you get, the more your body reacts to it. And it goes on and on like that and it gets worse. Instead, you focused on what you were for, on what you wanted to have happen, not what you were afraid of. And that's something that hypnosis can be very helpful with. It can help you take a new point of view about an old problem. So instead of fighting it, what exactly did you tell yourself when you were stuck in your dorm room there? I told myself in that moment that I needed to calm down and try to breathe deeply and to lay down and just try to minimize my movement for a moment. And the reason I did that over trying to run downstairs and find a phone was that I sensed that I was making it worse by the second because I was starting to get like all pent up. Right. And so right. I just took that option. Now I was alone. I was in a townhouse. So it typically would have three or four girls in it, but I was alone in the house. Right. And how hard would it have been for me to get somewhere where there was a phone? It was just going to take, in my estimation, too long. And so instead of allowing myself to continue panicking more, I just, this is what I have to do right now. It's kind of like my own life-saving measure. Right. It was. And your self-awareness that the way you related to your body, you could either make things better or worse mm -hmm. was very important. So you looked at your options and getting help elsewhere didn't look like a good option. So you realized it had to come from within. And then you found the resource to say, if I can just calm my body, I can deal with whatever it is that's going on. Mm -hmm. So rather than panicking about what your body was doing, you took charge and said, I'm going to calm it down. You did a kind of spontaneous self-hypnosis where you focused on protecting calming your body and your body responded well to this positive input rather than just more and more tension as you get more and more scared. And that's a key ingredient in what we teach people to manage stress, to get to sleep, to do a lot of things with hypnosis is focus on a broader kind of relationship with your body where you treat it the way you would treat a child that was in trouble. You know, you wouldn't get angry with it. You wouldn't get more and more tense. You would try to calm and soothe the child. And you did that with your body. And that's a very useful technique. And hypnosis intensifies it because of the intense focus of attention and the intense ability to connect with your own body. Well, I think it's phenomenal that we have this resource within us. And so it seems to me that something like this would actually improve the success rate of other therapies that we might use 
what is the success rate if you have one for specifically hypnosis or self-hypnosis and does it make other treatments more successful? Well, it varies depending on what the problem is, but we're finding that within 10 minutes using Reverie, we get 60 to 80% reduction in pain, similar with self-reported stress, that people say they can reduce their stress by that much that fast. And the nice thing is, unlike most other treatments, which take time, even just to fill a prescription and see what happens once you get the drug in you, you can tell right away whether you're feeling better. I had one woman who was seven months pregnant, very bad lower back disease. They couldn't give her pain meds because she was uh, pregnant. They implanted a nerve stimulator and their back didn't work. So her pain was seven out of 10. I get her hypnotized and I said, where do you feel best when you got the pain? She said, taking a warm bath. I said, good, we're gonna do that right now. So you're in this bath, you feel a warm tingling numbness penetrating deeper and deeper into your body and into your back. Let it filter the hurt out of the pain. And within a few minutes, she says, my pain is like three now. I can live with that. And she opens her eyes and she looks angry. And I said, what are you angry about? She said, why in the hell are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? She had been through all kinds of other unpleasant things in work. And that's the problem. People don't take hypnosis seriously because it's just talking. You know, we tend to think that real treatment is like fixing a car, you know, remove the part and replace it incision, injection, or ingestion. And the thing that really, you know, when people say hypnosis, it either doesn't work or it's really dangerous. I said, well, you know what? Last year, the CDC estimated that there were 75,000 overdose deaths from opioids in the United States. And these are not suicides. These are people who just inadvertently overdose themselves and opioids suppress respiration in addition to reducing pain. They're a good treatment for acute pain day or two after surgery. They're a terrible treatment for chronic pain. They get people addicted, they escalate, and they can just go to sleep and not wake up. Like those poor two children in a daycare center in New York yesterday. One boy died and three others were seriously ill because somehow somebody there was using drugs and they got into the opioid. It's horrifying. And so the idea that hypnosis is either ineffective or dangerous, but drugs are the way to treat pain, is just wrong and it's dangerously wrong. And so another reason I have reverie out there is I want people to have other options for managing pain. Pain is a real problem. It's very difficult, but it's manageable with techniques like hypnosis as well as other treatments also. Now, some of the research that you've done, I um, believe has also touched on things like addiction as it relates to smoking. As like a, for right. instance, that 1978 research, which is just over what, 45 years ago now, yeah. so a long time ago. Yeah. And helping people with addiction to something like cigarettes, which are known to be as addictive as some of these prescription pain medicines pieces that you're talking yes. about today. If you're able to help them with one, it would follow by nature that you could support their journey away from the other. If they had, let's say, had some traumatic injury, been on long-term painkillers that perhaps they shouldn't have been on, and then suffered now with this addiction to opioids that are sadly still very commonplace in our society. That's right. Well, that paper that you referred to is just to see what a single session of teaching people self-hypnosis, what effect it could have on smoking. And we did was we put people into a state of self-hypnosis and told them, we want you to think about three things. Don't fight smoking. There were these highway signs, are you dying for a cigarette? And smokers would think, yeah, I am. I think I'll light up. They didn't get the joke. But we just said, there are three things I want you to remember. For my body, smoking is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. You focus on what you're for. Would you ever put tar and nicotine smoke into the lungs of your baby or your dog or your cat? No. Well, your body is as dependent on you as a baby or a pet. So treat it with the same respect because it has to take into it anything you put into it, even if it's damaged by it. So we found after a single session, half the people stopped smoking and half of them did not touch a cigarette in two years. So we got 23% long-term complete abstinence from smoking. Now, I wish it were more people, but that's not bad. And it's good as we get now with varenicline or bupropion, the medications that are used to help people stop smoking. And, you know, it's inexpensive. It's available to anyone. And so it works. And so why not use something like that? You know, a lot of Nicorette gum, a lot of people find it doesn't help much. 
nobody has ever died in nicotine withdrawal. So just stop it and focus on what you're for. And people can do it and live longer and healthier. Well, as a former smoker who battled that addiction, I was somebody who smoked up to two packs a day in my teens and early 20s. And so coming to a point where I quit was really tough because it was so connected to my identity, right? Right. I smoked as an adult. I smoked at the bar. I smoked while I played pool. I smoked while I hung out with friends at a coffee shop. It was how I'd pick up on a guy if I was interested in them. Hey, do you have a light? Something? Can I bum a smoke? I mean, it was just so connected to my experience as a young adult that stopping it at 29 when I decided I'm going to spend my life with this person, I'm going to get married, and I don't want to be the wheezing 40-something-year-old going to buy a cat in a moss <laughs> or whatever, you know? <laughs> I'm just making this joke, but I mean, I smoked American spirits, whatever, but like... I had this memory from my childhood of this woman who smoked moors and she smoked more cigarettes while her kids and I played in her yard all day long. And so I was able to marry this negative construct idea in my mind and say, I need to quit this. I tried Wellbutrin, didn't work for me, made me super anxious. I tried nicotine gum, didn't work for me. The thing that seemed to work for me was something similar to what you're saying the research covers, which is just like focusing on the positive things, why I was doing this so I could live a long and healthy life with my husband to be so that I wouldn't be ravaged with health problems so that I could breathe deep and continue to enjoy the great outdoors without a difficulty. And so I wouldn't be wasting all this money on cartons of cigarettes (laughs) kept going up in price, you know? I mean, the (laughs) fact that I bought them by the carton is also a tell, right? But you also recently published a study, Hypnotizability and Weight Loss, along with Marianne Barbaraz. And there's that same mantra is essentially in here. For my body, overeating is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body this respect and protection. So starting off in this self-hypnosis phase with a message like this, replacing the word overeating with something like, for my body this thing is a poison. I need to stop it. I need my body to live. I owe my body this respect and protection. It could be the foundation of quitting any addictive behavior. That's absolutely right. That you focus on what you're for. And you know, you quit smoking because you found someone to be for. That is you, you were looking at it as a way of solidifying your love relationship with the man you married. That's a wonderful thing but it was a positive goal. You weren't feeling sorry for yourself. I'm depriving myself of something. And then the same way with eating, we teach people to focus on eating with respect for your body, feeding your body the way you would feed your child or your pet with care and concern, putting good nutrients in your body and not stuffing more in it than your body wants to eat. And so one of the things we teach people is to be more in tune with your body's natural hunger and satiety cues. And when you're hungry, eat. Diets don't work. You can starve yourself anytime, but it will not help re-regulate your eating behavior. But instead, eat when you're hungry and pay attention and stop when you're full. So if you're halfway through that plate of food at dinner and you're not hungry anymore, stop. Don't eat it. And if you get hungry later in the evening, eat some more. That's fine. But get tune into your body's needs. Your body's very good at letting you know when it's hungry, when it's not, when it enjoys eating, it doesn't. And you can also enjoy eating more even as you eat less. Very often, we taste the first bite, and then you go on, you watch television, you're on your phone, you're talking to someone. You're not enjoying the food you're eating. So it is quite possible to have much more pleasure out of eating, but eat in a way that respects and protects your body. And we had a guy who used the Reverie app, terrific guy. The reason he got started was he saw a picture of himself at a party, and he said, that's funny. That guy's wearing the same unusual shirt that I was wearing. I wonder who it was. I didn't notice him there. And then he realized it was him with this huge belly. And he had sort of put the two together. And so he got it. And he started with reverie. He started eating with respect for his body. He also became a compulsive walker. So he said, I used to wait for my wife to ask me to go to the store so I could drive there and park near the store and do it. He said, now I wait so I can walk to the store. And he was walking, you know, like from one town to the next rather than driving because he got into exercising. And the combination 
of exercise and eating respectfully, he lost 35 pounds and he kept it off. And he went around recruiting his other friends. So after six months, he was looking very slim and trim and feeling so much better and just using the Reverie app, just concentrating in this state of, I can be a different person now. I can focus on respecting and protecting my body. I can learn to enjoy things I used to avoid, like walking. So it's a matter of using this state to help redefine who you are. And you do it not by figuring out why you are that way. It doesn't really matter. You do it by trying out being a different person and seeing what it feels like. And a lot of us can do that just the way you did with your asthma attack and with your smoking. Well, it sounds to me a little bit like you're taking this mindfulness approach and then for lack of a better term, putting it on steroids, you're essentially juicing it up like with that. this whole idea <laughs> of, I love it. <laughs> you know, cause mindfulness it, on steroids. I'm going to steal that. I'll attribute it to you, <laughs> Karina, but I like it. <laughs> That's fine. But you know, I think in our first conversation, I was asking you, you know, how is this different than meditation? Because I think from the outside, a lot of this kind of mindset work, comes from mindfulness, comes from, okay, envisioning the future or allowing your mind to become a blank state and ask yourself a question, kind of this whole meditative pursuit. But what's different is, I think, how you're directing it, because it feels very much like you're saying, okay, well, here's the end goal. And this is who I want to be, how I want to be. And so I'm going to take the steps to get there. Now, I've confronted addicts in my life, and I've had I think everybody knows an alcoholic. That's just a kind of groovy term for an addict today. It's like alcohol is socially acceptable. And so we drink and some people drink way too much and past the point where it's just, you know, a nice social thing into something that's very habitual and very health degrading. So just take that, for instance, it doesn't necessarily have to be something like opioid addiction. It can be an addiction to something that's considered socially acceptable. So it's unhealthy for them. So just like that, for me, overeating is a poison. For me, alcohol is a poison. I need to treat my body like this temple and I'm going to honor it by ceasing this behavior, right? Whether even that's just overconsumption or an all out quit. So to me, it seems like it makes sense that these systems can work together to power the mind can be leveraged. And I'm curious to know, as we dig a little deeper, how else you might separate this idea of hypnotism from something like meditation? Well, yes, meditation is an Eastern tradition, a long and respected Eastern tradition. I have great respect for it. But the whole thing in meditation is to get over yourself, you know, to sort of see that you're part of some broader pattern of being. And, you know, some people believe in the cycle of living and dying and meditation. But the idea is, don't focus on yourself. It's an illusion. And in meditation, you practice basically three things. You do a body scan, checking out your body and how it feels. You try and get over yourself to let feelings have what's called open presence, to just let feelings and thoughts flow through you and don't judge them or try to control them or contain them, which is a good exercise. And you try to practice compassion, which is a wonderful thing too. But the whole thing is, it's so Eastern that you're not supposed to do it for a purpose. You're just supposed to do it to be a meditator, to be more calm and unfocused in a sense. Just let things happen as they may happen. So it's Eastern. Hypnosis is Western. You do it for a purpose. You know, we all try to be efficient. The French say that, you know, that they work to live and Americans live to work, you know, that we focus on getting something done. <laughs> well, we do. Yeah. And hypnosis is a very useful tool to solve a problem, like stopping smoking, like controlling addictions of other kinds, like dealing with stress, like controlling pain, like handling phobias and fears, focusing on your work. Because hypnosis is just a state of highly focused attention, like looking through a telephoto lens, what you see, you see with great detail. People who are highly hypnotizable tend to get so caught up in things that they forget caught up in a movie. They forget they're in a theater watching a movie. They enter the imagined world. It's been called believed in imagination. To do that, you have to put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. And so right now you're having sensations in your body touching that chair you're sitting. And hopefully that was not foremost in your mind until I mentioned it to you. If it was, we could stop the interview now. And the third thing about hypnosis, absorption, dissociation, 
is cognitive flexibility or what people used to worry about as suggestibility. It's really your ability to let go of old mental constructs and try on new ones and see how they feel. So that's a powerful combination because you focus intently, you get out of awareness things you don't want to be aware of, like pain, for example, or like somatic reactions to stress, and you can take on new ways of adapting to things. So hypnosis is a focused toolkit for managing problems, and that's how we use it with reverie. Well, I think you've said a couple of things I want to unpack here. For one, you mentioned earlier, you were talking about how you could use hypnosis to essentially unmake or remake yourself almost, right? Like say, okay, well, this is acknowledging a problem I have and now envisioning what I want to be and then having hypnosis as a tool to kind of get there. And you've also talked about the fact that hypnosis is a state of intense focus, almost like tunnel vision, right? You just get focused in on one thing. Now, before I discovered your work, I never understood that piece at all. And I thought, well, I'm a skeptic, so I'm not going to be hypnotizable, like the power of suggestion, whatever. That's not going to work for me because that's not how I am, right? You define yourself in certain ways. And that was one of my independent thinker ways of defining myself. But you have me reflecting on moments in my life, you know, where I have been intensely focused. Even the fact that some of my friends will say things like, oh, don't interrupt her at work. You know, it's like a dis- she's so focused. <laughs> if you try to interrupt her, it's like, <laughs> you know, you just derailed a train. Good but, luck. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's That's like, right. oh, you came into my world. Well, I'm on this track right now. And so, you know, it's just, right. I get pretty into the thing that I'm doing. And it's the same when I read a book. I'm transported to a space and a place that I don't live within. And I won't even hear a door open in my space when I'm right. really in that. And so understanding these two things that we can almost remake ourselves using hypnotism and that it can improve or leverage our ability to focus to do these things and and make them what I would call almost like innate because you're even saying the research has shown people start this practice and then they keep the weight off and the addiction stops. Like they don't smoke two years later, they're still doing okay. That doesn't mean they started smoking two years later. It means you track them for that long and they were still a non-smoker, right? That's correct. That's absolutely right. So the same thing with the weight loss. And not a single cigarette. And with the weight loss, we tracked them for three months. And the one in in our hypnosis group lost 30 pounds and they kept it off. You know, they just, they didn't eat it back. So it's not that they... That was their goal. And it's not like you're saying at three months, they suddenly gained it back because you just, no, the no. study ended. So you're not continuing to track them, right? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know what happened afterwards. But in general, they seemed very comfortable. They weren't like sewing their mouth shut and not being able to eat anything. They were eating comfortably and eating with respect for their body. And they enjoyed coming, discovering themselves at this new weight. They felt better about it and they wanted to maintain it. So they did. So yes, hypnosis is a way of changing your perspective on what you're doing, but also on who you are. Are you a person who can do this? Because many people with habit problems, as you mentioned, you know, you felt bad about smoking, about buying all those cigarettes and things but you didn't think you could change it, you know? And the fact is that you could and you did, and you stayed that way. You know, once you made the change, you stuck with it. And so if you do it in a way that's positive, that focuses on what you're for, and that allows you to use your ability to be absorbed, to be absorbed in the new you, and you could find reasons to enjoy it. You know, you could find reasons that consolidate it rather than feeling that you're depriving yourself of something. You pat yourself on the back and say, good for me. I'm taking better care of my body and I feel better and I look better. And so all of those are things that consolidate change, that help you maintain the change you've made. Now, I mean, there are people too who they face incredible pain, physical pain, right? And they say, well, I got to go in for this surgery and, you know, have these herniated discs repaired in my back. Just one of the most painful things that people can go through insofar as like a chronic issue, right? Like this is often when they might become addicted to a pain medication because they need it for a prolonged period of time and ibuprofen just ain't going to cut it. And sometimes they get a nerve block, but sometimes as in the case you discussed earlier, doesn't work for Mm -hmm. one reason or another. Maybe it's not targeting the right nerve and Mm -hmm. they still experience the pain and the discomfort. So how would you set someone up for success that's in a situation like this? They might be listening today. It might be battling an issue. And maybe surgery will help them, but it might also, <laughs> might not repair everything, right? 
Right. You know, the cool thing about hypnosis and about reverie is it doesn't cost very much and you can use it whenever you want. And the worst thing that happens is it doesn't work. I can tell you that my lovely wife, Helen Blau, who's a stem cell biologist at Stanford, had both of our children with hypnosis as the only anesthesia. She didn't have an epidural. She wanted to be in control of the delivery. And our son, Dan, big strapping architect now, was 10 pounds when he was born. And it was, you know, like a 10-hour labor. And I was doing hypnosis with Helen the whole time. I had no pain at all. And, <laughs> she, and she would say, look, I teach pharmacology. There are drugs for this. And I said, you're floating in Lake Tahoe, tingling and numb, filtered the hurt out of the pain. And she and Dan and later our daughter, Julia, were born fine. And Helen found it a challenging, difficult, but triumphant experience to be able to do that. And so we've done randomized controlled trials of women with metastatic breast cancer who have considerable pain. People with metastatic disease tend to have at least twice as much pain as people with primary cancer. And naturally, when you have a disease like that and you feel a new pain in your chest, you think, oh, it's a new metastasis in my rib. The disease is progressing. You get more anxious. You pay more attention to it. You fight it. And instead, they would go into self-hypnosis and say, cool, tingling numbness, just take a nice swim in the lake and filter the hurt out of the pain. And I can tell you what happened to them in terms of pain and then what's going on in their brain. So the part with the pain was at the end of a year, they had half the pain that the women in the control group, we had a randomized comparison group, did on the same and very low amounts of medication. So their pain went down, the other group's pain went up. And they would say, I'm no longer freaking out at sign the cancer spreading. I'm just reminding myself that I can control this. So they had something to do to be in control of their response. Now, why were they in control? Here's why. Because the brain, the strain and pain lies mainly in the brain. The brain signals come to the brain through special pathways, the lateral spinal thalamic tract up to the somatosensory cortex in the brain. But Brain is what determines that it's pain and not something else, not just touching something or moving your toe or something, but it's interpreting it as a pain signal. And it really hurts for sure. But what you can do with hypnosis and studies using functional magnetic resonance imaging have shown that there are two parts of the brain where you can actually reduce the production of pain signals, either in the somatosensory cortex back here or in a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is a what we call the salience network. It's a part where we determine, uh-oh, there's a problem, you better pay attention to it. You can turn down activity. In one study, it just meant changing the words you use. So if you hypnotize the subjects who were getting shocks to the wrist and said, cool, tingling, numbness, filter the hurt out of the pain, the activity went down in the sensory cortex. If you said pain's there, but it's not so bad, it won't bother you, don't worry about it. That was in the salience network, in the anterior cingulate. So you could watch with their reduction in pain, changes in those parts of the brain. And we've also done studies uh, like that with event-related potentials, EEG. And you see that the signals that come from the shocks that are associated with the shocks are the first part of the signal at a tenth of a second after the signals are given disappears. And the other parts of the brain's response are half as big. Hmm. So it's not that the brain is saying, oh, it hurts, but I really pretend it isn't it actually reduces the brain's activity in reaction to the stimulus. So it is genuine change in pain, not just, you know, reacting to it differently afterwards. And so that's a very powerful thing. You know, there are athletes who, you know, break their ankle on the football field and don't notice it until the coach sees them on the bench saying, you know, your ankle's swollen, what happened? So the brain is very good at modulating perception. Uh, we've also done studies looking at visual perception, and we found using PET scanning that if you hypnotize people and show them a color grid and say, drain the color out of it, the activity in the color processing region of the brain is reduced. And if you have them look at a black and white grid and hypnotize them and say, it's really colorful, and they'll say, oh yeah, it looks really red, green, orange, all kinds of things. Activity in those regions of the brain goes up. So the brain is not just a passive recipient of information. It's a very complex, powerful processor. And you can alter the processing. And that capacity to surprise yourself, it's one of the things I love watching people with hypnosis. You know, you tell them their hand will float up. And they look at it, and you pull it down, and it goes back up. And they say, what's going on here? You know, they get surprised. I love that element of surprise, because people are learning something about themselves. 
and how much more capacity they have to control experience and behavior than they used to think. Now, you have a test within the Reverie app to learn how hypnotizable that you are. Now, I took the test and I learned that I'm represented by the triangle. I'm the poet, right? You're the poet. Right? <laughs> so you have a few other archetypes within the platform. Can right. you tell us about what they mean and what they mean to our hypnotizability so that we can potentially have an idea of how we can integrate some of these things and how receptive we might be? Sure. The idea of this test, which I have used with every one of the 7,000 people I've used hypnosis with in my career, is to get a feeling for how they are best likely to make take advantage of a hypnotic experience. And for the poets like you, it's easy. You can just immediately immerse yourself. So like what you said, your friends knew not to even try to bother you when you were dealing with a problem at work because you got so intensely focused. So they can easily feel transformed as you do when you're reading a novel or watching a good play. You just enter the imagined world. So the focus of your imagination is intense. The second group are people that we call the diplomats. They have some intense hypnotic experience like that, but they shift back and forth between that and reflecting on what the experience means. And is it really happening? Is it true or not? And so they come to a kind of negotiation about how to incorporate the hypnotic experience. They don't always automatically immerse themselves in it, but they do sometimes, and then they think about it. So you can help people to combine their evaluation of the experience with their immersion in the experience. And that's why we call it diplomat, because diplomats are always negotiating between different sides in an event and trying to reach a resolution. The third group is the researcher. They're people who can change their experience, but they do it only with great critical examination. They want to they test hypotheses. Is this really working? Can it work? How does it work? And so for them, my treatment of them is more a negotiation than it is just experience it and feel it. So you can also change, but you do it in a different way. So I had a woman patient not too long ago, lovely uh, 72-year-old woman who had smoked for 50 years and she decided it was time to stop. She'd actually had stopped, but wanted help consolidating it. And she told me that she was a woman who always had to judge and evaluate things. And she turned out to be the researcher type. And she had told me about one unfortunate marriage she had when her husband hit her one day. And she did something very wise. The next morning, she's in her lawyer's office filing for divorce. You know, she didn't see this as something that could or should be negotiated. And so... When I talked to her, I wanted to find an image that would help her. And the idea of respecting, protecting her body was helpful. But I said one other thing, you know what? You need a divorce from your cigarettes. That's what you need. And that linked it to something she had actually done in her life that made a real difference. And she's not smoking. So it's a matter of these three styles, the poet, the researcher, and the diplomat, are people different ways of having them use what hypnotic ability they have. So in your opinion, then, is everyone hypnotizable? Well, there are some people on the low end, some of the researchers just don't respond very hypnotically to things, but they can change. And, you know, the book that I wrote with my late father about the use of hypnosis is clinical use of hypnosis is trance and treatment. So, you know, it's a combination of the hypnotic state itself and the strategy you use, the treatment strategy you use, and we combine it in different ways. So with the poet, just say, here's another imaginary experience, just immerse yourself in it and do it. And whereas for the researcher, you have to find a cognitive way of approaching the problem that helps you resolve it. And in her case, it was finding something that affiliated with something she had done very effectively earlier in her life to get rid of something else that was damaging to her body. So everybody can benefit from the hypnotic-like experience that they have in reverie. Some may find it a more immersive experience and some a more evaluative experience, but that's fine. See, I've had some time to think over my self-perception since our last conversation as well. And I think I'm still a skeptic from the outside, right? But then when I start to understand how something can relate, I'm very open and I think that power of suggestion kind of opens. So it's like I've got a filter in place. 
And I think that is part of my self-perception about myself. Oh, I'm the skeptical person. I like to do the research. I definitely do. But I think that's in place as a filter to keep the BS out, right? And the reason <laughs> I um, kind of dove into this with more openness is because having heard you now on several different podcasts and having looked at the Reverie app, I was able to identify those moments in my life where I had essentially used the power of hypnosis to get over something that was a challenge. and you know, I just didn't know to call it that. And so that was the smoking. That was the asthma attack or panic attack, whatever that moment was. And then also when painkillers wore off in the dentist chair and I had all four of my wisdom teeth removed at the same time, just under local anesthesia, not general. And my two in the top were under the skin, like they never emerged, but the bottom ones had come up past the gum line. So they had cracked the last tooth, which was my upper right. And I'm like, oh, wait, I felt that, right? And yeah, so right. I had the dentist says to me at this moment, okay, well, we have two choices. I can pack you up with that broken tooth in your jaw and send you home and bring you back tomorrow. And we can start this thing over again when I can give you more anesthesia or we can get through this right now. So my options weren't very open and I had to, compartmentalize the pain. That was how I saw it at the moment. Like, okay, my jaw is going to hurt. This is what is going to happen. I'm going to have to keep this clamp in my mouth while he works to take the pieces of this tooth out and stitch me up. This is going to be a painful experience for myself and my body. So I need to go somewhere else. And I envisioned myself spending time with one of my best friends on the beach, on my favorite beach in Santa Cruz, four mile walking with her, and I just kind of kept repeating the words to myself in my head as I envisioned these spaces, even while my body experienced a pain, even while tears might have been still streaming from my eyes. And the thing that this did for me, which also resonates with your comments about your wife earlier and her feelings of going through that labor over 10 hours and making it through without having to have anesthetic, is that at the tail end of it, I didn't take the trauma with me. And I think this is, you know, I, instead I took a badge of courage. Like I felt like I was able to conquer this hill and it was hard, but I'm here and it's fine. And instead of being afraid of every appointment at the dentist from that moment forward, I was able to go without that kind of residual pain, which is, I think what also opens me to this concept that this type of treatment could be very helpful for people with PTSD so I'd love for you to just talk about that for a moment, like what success have you've seen and how people are able to self-hypnotize to center themselves in really traumatic or difficult moments. Yes. Well, first of all, congratulations to you. And you literally made it more comfortable for yourself that you endured the pain. You transcended it. You just said, okay, this is going to happen to my body. I'll trust my body to deal with it. And I'm going to go to Santa Cruz and be on the beach. So you literally reduced the pain. And this was not an illusion, it's a fact. You handled it differently. Your brain reacted to it differently. Congratulations. And you emerged with a sense of victory, not victimhood, because you did what you needed to do at that time. Yes, in a similar way, uh, Karina, people in the midst of traumatic experiences go into self-hypnotic states. You know, they detach themselves. They just say, I'll get through this somehow and I'll worry about the consequences later. I had a patient who had been in the World Trade Center when it was bombed, attacked by the airplane. And she's trying to get down from, you know, God knows what floor. And she tells herself, I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other. So I'm not going to think about what's going on. I'll just promise myself that if I get to the ground floor, I'll survive. And she did. And the other building collapsed and she was blown through a plate glass window. Um, and she was alive to tell me about it. And she emerged feeling angry with herself. I lied to myself. And I said, you didn't lie to yourself at all. You saved your life. There's no point getting the big picture when you're in a situation like that. And you did what you needed to do. And that happens to people. That have, Most women who are being sexually assaulted feel like, imagine that they're floating above their body, feeling sorry for the woman being attacked beneath. I had a social worker patient who wanted to use hypnosis after an attempted rape to figure out, get a better image of the guy's face because it was just getting dark. She was coming home from the grocery store and he attacked her outside of her apartment. 
And she was fighting with him. And I had her picture it in hypnosis. And I said, I want you to picture what happened to you. And she said, this guy, he doesn't just want to rape me. He's going to kill me. If he gets me into my apartment, he's going to kill me. And she hadn't allowed herself to realize how dangerous the situation was. So I said, now on the other side of the screen, body, your body is safe and comfortable now. I understand it's very upsetting, but your body is safe. I said, what did you do to protect yourself? And she said, you know what? He's surprised. He didn't think I'd fight that hard. And she wound up with a basilar skull fracture from the fight with him, but she realized that she had saved her life. So on the one hand, the hypnosis helped her see that it was even worse than she thought it was. But on the other hand, instead of feeling bad for getting herself injured, she saw that she had saved her life. So people can revisit a state that they were in in some ways in a traumatic moment and see more about it and come to a whole different point of view about what had occurred. Well, you have me thinking about another uncomfortable moment from my life, and I'm just going to share it because I think that this is important for people to know as a problem out there. I was a young woman out at a bar, had my second drink, so not far into my alcohol consumption, right? Just out with some friends and suddenly realized I was feeling very altered, like a lot more than I should be. And so I um, made the choice. I felt like I had a, a clock ticking. I hadn't driven. I, I lived downtown, so it was only a couple blocks away. And I'm just like, I'm just going to go home. So I started to walk home alone. That was probably not the wisest part. I should have asked for a friend to come with me. And after about a block and a half, realized I was being followed by somebody. And I was getting closer and closer to my home, made the decision to instead go to a restaurant that was open 24 hours that some of my friends worked at. And it was an exercise in willpower to get there because I could feel my mental faculties completely slipping away from me. And I was able to get there just through setting my mind on this one thing and focusing with as much intent as I could possibly put forward. Now, I did run into some friends and this guy made themselves scarce and they were able to get me home safely. But I, like this individual you're describing, had this knowledge that if I let this person track me home, I was in real trouble. And so, you know, I think we can leverage the power of the mind in moments, even when we are faced with real danger and understand that we have this power and capacity to overcome, even if we are you know, being seemingly drugged and taken for advantage. So... It's just, you know, the modern world we live in, unfortunately. <laughs> well, but good for you. You let your sense of danger arm you to do what you needed to do. And somebody apparently slipped something in your drink and that's, you know, two drinks shouldn't do that to you. So something mm. else may have happened. Yeah. But you were able to perceive the change and act on the basis of your vulnerability. And yes, it might have been better if you'd asked someone to walk you home from the bar, but you got to where you had people who would keep you safe. Yeah. And good for you. Well, and I just say to all women out there, you know, you got to learn to trust yourself. You trust your body, but you also have to trust your intuition. And, you know, that applies to, I think, all people. Like, really, if we learn to trust our minds and the capability of that mind, we also can trust our, our intuition. Yeah. Absolutely. You need to trust it and act on it. And the worst thing that happens is you feel a little silly if you are overly cautious. So what? That's so much better than having to deal with someone taking advantage of you. So congratulations for, you were a good mother to your own body. You were protecting your body from harm. Right. And again, we need to be our own best advocates, right? And sometimes those are moments that we're alone at the same time. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> you need a good lawyer and you have to be your <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> now, um, yeah. I also have seen you do tests for people on different podcasts for how mm -hmm hypnotizable they can be. I was hoping that we could give our audience a taste of what they might experience in the Reverie app, just so that you can showcase your ability to do this with voice and the power of the person that sure. you're in front of. So can you walk sure. me through? Sure. I'll be glad to do it. So get as comfortable as you can on one, do one thing, look up all the way up, do two things, slowly close your eyes and take a deep breath. Good. And three, do three things. Let the breath out. Let your eyes relax, but keep them closed. Let your body float. Just imagine you're floating in a bath 
a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. Each breath deeper and easier. And now I'm going to ask you to take your left hand and stroke the back of your right hand. Starting at the tip of your middle finger and running your hand all the way along your the back of your right hand and along your forearm to your elbow. And feel a sense of tingling and numbness and lightness and let your right hand float up in the air like a balloon. All the way up higher and higher as the rest of your body feels heavy and relaxed. Higher it goes, the lighter it'll feel. You may have to help it to get it started, but just let your right hand float up in the air like a balloon. Now with your eyes closed and remaining in the state of concentration, please describe how your hand is feeling right now. It feels kind of like, um, I don't know, like there's a empty space below it that is just buoyant. Mm -hmm. And it feels almost a little cooler. Cooler. Good. Yeah. All right. And let it go higher and higher. Your forearm bend and your hand float up in the air like a balloon. You can let go with your left hand. Just let your right hand float up in the air like a balloon. How is it feeling now? Um, just almost like it's its own thing. <laughs> its own thing, good. Yeah. Does your right hand feel as if it's not as much a part of your body as your left hand? Yes, absolutely. All right. Now take your left hand and pull your right hand down and then let go. What's happening? <laughs> it's resistance training almost. <laughs> All right, let go of it again with your left. And what's happening? It floated back up. I can feel that it did that. <laughs> <laughs> Does that surprise you? Yeah, very. <laughs> it's like, All right. kind of like working with an elastic band almost. <laughs> Good. All right. Now, when I ask you to touch your right elbow, your usual sensation and control will return. You'll find something pleasant and amusing about this sensation. All right. So now touch your right elbow with your left hand. That is so strange. And how's it feeling now? Normal. Normal. A little cooler, Good. maybe, because I think. A little cooler. But like normal, I have control of it again. So you have control back again. I had done the yeah. test on Reverie, and I had a yeah. slightly different experience, but I also had a distraction of a puppy that was trying to chew on me while I was doing it. And <laughs> um, and the feeling was different because when my hand never got up without help, like I had to help it. Mm -hmm. But then when I mm -hmm. tried to put it back down, it felt like there was like an anti-pulling sensation, like, like it felt uncomfortable to put it down. Not like there was resistance, but like it was just, it felt icky. Didn't want to yeah, do it didn't, that. Ugh, like that doesn't feel right. And so it's interesting to see the difference for, between the level of focus uh, that I personally mm -hmm. had and also the benefit of you being across the screen from me. I think it changed right. things a little bit too. But it's so it interesting how hard it is to look up and the same time I'm yes, trying to close my eyes. It takes intense concentration. Let's try it one more time so that I, I want to look up again. Close your eyes, take a deep breath. It is hard. Breath out, eyes relax, body float. And notice how quickly and easily you can go into this state of self-hypnosis. And now we're going to come out together by counting backwards from three to one. On three, get ready. Two, with your eyelids closed, roll up your eyes. One, let your eyes open. If your hand is up, it'll float back down, and that'll be the end of the exercise. It did start to float almost immediately when I just did the eye yeah. thing. That was like it just kind of came off the surface of the desk. <laughs> well, wow. you've learned in association, yeah. So, wow. So it's what your brain can do with your body. It can make it feel very different very quickly. And I mean, I just the feeling I have, like I feel focused and I feel calm, and a little ecstatic at the experience, which is not a bad thing. Like, it's, Hey, cool. that was really cool. cool at all. Wow. That's cool. I love that. That's the sense of surprise of what your brain and body can do together. And I'm glad you're feeling good. And that often people feel that way. They feel intensely focused, but calm at the same time. Body is calm, but your brain is working to get you focused on what you want to focus on. So that's a tremendous 
therapeutic opportunity. And just couple that with the right nutrition and exercise program and there you, go. you can be a lot healthier, I imagine. Wow. You bet. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today. This has been well, my absolute pleasure. Well, me too. I would love to offer you the floor for a moment to offer any closing thoughts for our audience. Any ideas that you'd like them to walk away from today's conversation thinking about? Uh, well, I love your definition of hypnosis as meditation on steroids. I think it is a state of highly focused attention that is a tremendous opportunity for people to better manage their body and their lives to help with problems like pain and stress and insomnia, getting to sleep, habit problems like smoking and drinking. It's a way of mastering how you and your body work together and you become a better caretaker of your body and your body takes better care of you. So it's a wonderful opportunity and I welcome people to come to Reverie. We have a website, www.reverie.com. And you can download the Reverie app if you have an iOS phone from the App Store, if you have an Android from Google Play, and try it. And uh, the first week is free. You can get a feeling for what it's like. And if you find it helps, you keep doing it. If you don't, that's fine. But it's an opportunity to help you deal with many of the daily problems of life and learn to manage them yourself, your brain, and your body better. And so we welcome everybody to give Reverie a try. Yeah, well, I've personally been using it for about a week now, and I found that it does help me return to a deep, restful sleep. So I think sleep can make everybody's life better. So whether or yes. not you need it for a high stress moment or something like that, you know, you can download the app, give it a try. I encourage you because as it stands, people, it's like bringing Dr. David Spiegel in your pocket with you because it's his voice <laughs> walking you through these meditations or those are these yeah. self-hypnosis sessions, I should say, not meditations. Meditations on steroids. <laughs> right. There you go. Well, I'm very glad to be there. You know, when we developed Reverie, I used to hope it was almost as good as being in my office with me. And uh, we worked hard. It's interactive. So it is a lot like being in the office with me. I ask a question, you give an answer, and you get a different instruction. But then when I was thinking about insomnia, which it can be very helpful with, I thought, you know what? In some ways, this is better. Hopefully, when you wake up at 3 in the morning and need to go back to sleep, I'm not there in your bedroom, um, <laughs> but I am on the phone. And so anytime, anywhere you need me, I'm there. And I hope people will take advantage of that. Yeah. Well, and it is available for a monthly subscription to try out after the one week timeline expires. And um, I think you even have an annual and a lifetime membership option. So we do. you're trying to make it work for everybody. And I'm sure the app will continue to improve with time. So I yeah. love where it is so far. I do have it on my Android. So thank you for making it available Terrific. on both. Yes, you're welcome. This Android sure. girl is appreciative. Thank you. All right. <laughs> you're welcome. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Karina. And I'm glad you've discovered more and more about your hypnotic abilities. And you spontaneously made good use of it. And I'm sure now you'll make even better use of it. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. I think it's an incredible tool. And I look forward to hearing from my audience how you've been able to utilize self-hypnosis in your daily lives and how it might have made your experience just a little better. I hope so. Look forward to learning about that too. Awesome. What an incredible discussion today with Dr. David Spiegel. I felt like I was revealing a bit with you all going through that hypnosis on screen as well as just over the audio. But I have to tell you, the experience was very similar from the app itself, even just the word usage and everything else and the asking of questions and you kind of click through. So again, you know, seven day free trial, you should get it, try it out, see how hypnotizable you are. Perhaps you're a poet like me, perhaps you're a researcher and more skeptical, but perhaps also like me, you're a skeptic on the surface, but underneath it all, able to focus with intent and able to leverage the power of hypnosis for good in your life. So as it stands, as always, I will include links to where you can find out more about Dr. David Spiegel and his important research with show notes at caremorebebetter.com. I'm also going to connect to the books that he mentioned during the show, including that on trance and therapy that he co-authored with his father. You will find access to links and transcripts just like the entire conversation that we had today, fully transcribed on my podcast website, caremorebebetter.com. There too, if you sign up for our newsletter, 
you'll receive a five-step guide to help organize your efforts and unleash your potential. And I will also be sure to follow up with a coupon code from Dr. David Spiegel to get the Reverie app for a discounted rate. So you'll want to join that newsletter. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe wherever you are catching us today and click that bell to be notified of new episodes. If you give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, and even write us a review, we'll find more ear holes to share this message with. So I encourage you to do that as well. That simple act simply helps the podcast grow so we can continue bringing you great conversations like that with Dr. Spiegel today. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even reduce our reliance on Band-Aid prescriptions, take ownership of our lives and our health and our mind, heal ourselves with the incredible power of the mind. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. Thank you.